Albuquerque's macro aggression. Eddie Aragon, the Rock of Talk. All right, 422 here in the Kiva on the Instagram at KIVA, 93.7 the web, the app, rockoftalk.com. Here with my good friend, Larry Barron. Glad to be with him as we prepare for the special session tomorrow. And I can tell you right now that nobody would know this better than Larry Barron, which is why we brought him in for about the next half hour to kind of drill down on everything that's going to be happening um, I would probably say that this is the most important special session that we have ever had. Um, I would probably go so far as to say, Larry, that this is the most important session ever. There's things on the agenda. We've had Greg Schmidis uh, point this out, but everybody's grabbing your uh, screen grab off of uh, KOB Channel 4 yesterday. And let's just start right there. This is as bad as that. But the governor is failing to acknowledge just what type of situation she has put New Mexicans in during this Thanksgiving holiday and right on through Christmas. You're absolutely right. You know, it was interesting. I I don't think there's anyone who is listening to your voice right now who hasn't had to stand in line for food over the last week, week plus. And the the only difference is is maybe um, someone's only had to stand in line for a few minutes. Some have stand in line for more than an hour, two hours depending on the weather, and we all know why. It is singularly because of the governor's public health orders. These stores are not allowing in more than 75 people, and that causes the massive backup. I mean, just, you only need to do a search for New Mexico's food lines on social media, and you'll see what is going on. In fact, people should be documenting it, because I'll tell you why. You know, KOB did a story about this and they kind of hedged on the headline where they said, you know, concerns over grocery stores closing. I haven't seen besides yourself, a media outlet tackle the fact that New Mexicans are having to stand in line for food right now. However, the governor's office responded to the KOB report through a spokesperson and they said the state, this is a direct quote, the state is not forcing anyone to stand in a crowded line as you suggest. It is absolutely a ridiculous lie. It is solely because of the state. And they went on to say, the spokesperson said the idea of people being forced to stand in line was, quote, a Republican talking point and politically motivated, end quote. And so I'm sure, everyone, as we get ready to celebrate Thanksgiving, that you'll take solace in the fact knowing that the line you're standing in outside the Walmart, the Costco, or any other big box stores that are probably uh, still open because, you know, small businesses have just been crushed under this administration, you'll take solace in knowing that that line really doesn't exist. That is just a Republican talking point that was politically motivated. It is absolutely tone deaf. And that is the environment we live in right now in New Mexico. It is, I, I, I've run out of words for it, Eddie. You probably have some words for it, but it is, I, I, I did not, I don't think any New Mexican would have thought a year ago our state could get this bad this quickly. And people, I think, are just walking around in a, in a state of shock about what they have to do to, to get the bare minimum. Keep in mind, these are, these are the folks who are lucky enough to have disposable income right now for food, right? Not talking about the massive unemployment we have in our state. It is, it is not just a record of failure. It is colossal failure here in New Mexico. So this is compounding in the sense that there were those that were having those notices about having the COVID-19 infections and the rapid response team going to the property, going to the business. And 
notice one, notice two, notice three, and then finally the fourth notice shuts them down. And that's the way that KOB article starts. It says a dozen grocery stores around the state have been forced to close their doors after multiple employees test positive for COVID-19. That's the first phase, and that wasn't enough. That didn't reduce it, and she compounds it two weeks after the fact that she decides to go with this essential, non-essential, and she didn't even get that down because she had to revise her public health order just three days later on that yep. Friday, she a, a clarification. This is complete and total mismanagement of government. As uh, soon as she had her news conference on that Thursday at, at uh, one o'clock, everybody ran to the stores. Immediately, the shelves were emptied, bread, toilet paper, for whatever reason, the toilet paper, um, and then a number of other items. And we posted a number of those pictures on Saturday. John Block did a, uh, a post literally documenting every photo that he had received, the locations uh, that they were. And this is just blatantly false. And this is how we know we cannot trust our governor. We cannot trust our Democrats. We cannot uh, trust the people who are running this state when they are blindly disacknowledging exactly what the case is, the reality that New Mexicans are living in, and then you have the media carrying that water. And as you said, it, they kind of curbed it a little bit by saying what? Oh, uh, it, there's concern. No, this is a crisis. The people are on complete and total lockdown, freak out going into the biggest uh, holiday season, the biggest time of year, the biggest holidays uh, of the season, and, and people are completely and totally panicked. And her not acknowledging that reality shows that she is not in step. She needs to go. This is why we need to impeach her. There is a crisis of leadership as well as a crisis here in the state. Other states aren't experiencing this. Texas, Utah, Arizona, Colorado, nobody has lines wrapped around the building. Nobody is putting a complete and total lockdown. She has mm -hmm. uh, basically set DEFCON 4 for New Mexico unnecessarily. Well, and think about this, and, and just if you can't wrap your mind around this, Black Friday 2020, instead of standing in line for a doorbuster new electronic gadget, you're standing in line for a loaf of bread. That is Black Friday in 2020 in New Mexico. That is what we have been driven to so quickly, so fast. And you're right, crisis doesn't even begin to describe it. And as we get into to this special session, what a perfect way, right, to pass any bills that you know the public is going to be outraged over. It, it, you're absolutely right that this is a huge session. And, and let's talk a lot or a little bit about why. Number one is, this may be her last session, right? She's waiting on that golden ticket to go back to the swamp from, a, you know, a potential Biden administration. And two, so she she does not have any motivation to do anything to help the constituents here in New Mexico, only to um, elongate her power. That is the sole motivation. And secondly, how are New Mexicans going to participate in this? It was already tough enough when it was a virtual situation, but now we're going to uh, be asked to look at bills, see how they affect us while we're standing in line to get food. It's too convenient that this special session is called while well, New Mexicans are distracted with everything else. And, and I'll, I can tell you what I think their strategy is going to be. They are going to, to put a bill in that says, here's how we're going to spend these federal dollars. That came from President Trump, by the way. I doubt they'll send a thank you note. Well, here's how we're going to spend these federal dollars. And then they're going to just have a list of things in the bill called, you know, the poison pills, right? The things that they know 
that conservatives and traditional New Mexicans would never tolerate. And, and uh, Senator-elect Schmades has highlighted some of those. You know, money for Planned Parenthood, expanding the governor's power. And naturally, people who don't want to do those things are going to vote against the bill. And so then the Democrats are going to come from the other side and say, well, you voted against helping New Mexicans. And that's what they do, right? They put one line in there that says, we're going to send this money to New Mexicans, 20 lines that do just abhorrent things for New Mexico, People vote against the bill, and then they're going to start running the ads in no time flat saying you voted against sending um, care to New Mexicans during this time of COVID crisis. This is the governor trying to play firefighter after she's already been the arsonist. And it is a political ploy, make no doubt about it, so that they can continue to shift blame when things that are already set in motion to occur, unemployment, food lines, job losses, when those things continue to occur, the Democrats are going to point to the Republicans and say, oh, well, we were going to fix it, except by golly, these Republicans voted against this bill and try to pin it on them. New Mexicans are smarter than that. Everyone who is standing in a food line should be turning to the person in front of them, turn to the person behind them and say, you know, we're here because of the governor, right? And lastly, I, I can tell you, if the media was doing its job here in New Mexico, they would be doing one of two things. One, they would be going to the food lines and ask those people what they think about the governor and her order that has had them standing there in line. And two, they would be asking the governor, how is she personally getting groceries right now? If these food lines don't exist, how is she personally getting those groceries? I can guarantee you if the governor's name was Susana Martinez, those things would be done. We're speaking with Larry Behrens. He, of course, was Power of the Future, but he was also Communications Director for the Governor for the State of New Mexico, which, of course, was the aforementioned Susana Martinez. I want to talk for just a second about the $300 million that was found. And all of a sudden, she came to the rescue. And I'll tell you the thing that got me so incredibly upset is just as we had some quasi-good news about some election fraud and some things being brought down, she comes and she puts the kibosh and she says, okay, well, we got... Uh, a new update, and it just sort of crowds all the good information that's coming out from Washington, D.C., and she puts us on lockdown, but she says, hey, you're on lockdown, but here's $300 million. Larry, where did she get that money? How can she just quickly go to that money uh, without any sort of legislative approval? And are these businesses seemingly going to go ahead and you know, go with this once again for the, the fact that they just need money. Uh, I've got business after business that are, uh, is basically shutting down. They don't trust her. They don't trust her timelines. They don't trust anything that's coming out. So is this $300 million going to, is this her attempt to try and placate the, the people of New Mexico? I think so. I think that's a big part of it. I think also, too, she knows she is increasingly, I think it's finally after eight months, if not more, finally gotten through the ivory tower, uh, you know, where the air is thin on her pedestal up to Santa Fe, that people are economically suffering and that, you know, it's it, that, that she is going to take these federal dollars that came from the CARES Act and then she is going to determine how they are going to be distributed. And let's be honest uh, about what's happening with that. Before we got on this, you know, quote unquote, reset, uh, double lockdown, reset house arrest, we can call it, is she had uh, businesses saying you can open, but only if you go through government re-education. You can open, but only if you meet these criteria. I would suspect that it would be no different when you're getting CARES money. Oh, you want CARES money? Well, you have to jump through this hoop. Oh, you want? Oh, you have to. 
I, you know better than anyone. It's a tough decision for business owners because I know you're talking with them every day. You know, if I'm a business owner and I'm struggling to make ends meet right now and there's an opportunity for some funds that would help keep my business afloat, and even though I don't trust the governor, even though I don't lie, even though I would rather be working, um, it's tough to turn down, particularly if your competition is not going to turn it down, right? And so next thing you know, you could be out of business and underwater. And this is the philosophy that New Mexicans need to understand is coming from this governor. She feels that a government handout is better than you working. That's right. And she has That's no exactly connection. Right. She has no connection to the fact that tax dollars have to come from somewhere. And the and other so, thing too, Larry, to compound that is she doesn't realize how to create economic growth in the state of New Mexico. Since she started, we had a $6.3 billion budget. She went through that. She exacerbated that to $7.7 billion. Then we had COVID hit. She still didn't cut any more than $750 million. And somehow she finds another $300 million to pull. That's over a billion dollars of additional monies that our government just doesn't have. And we haven't even got into the tax revenue. We haven't even got into the fact that there's going to be a loss of revenue overall in the state. We haven't compounded the fact with we got oil and gas issues where they're not going to be bringing in. You saw what happened earlier this year in March and April with, with regard to oil. Nobody knows that better in the state of New Mexico than you, of course, with, with Power of the Future. But if you're noticing the gateway to all the goodies, the gateway to survivability, the gateway to any sort of uh, future business, if you even have one, is if you are going to go ahead and take the money directly from the government and it's probably also to see your, your families. We're seeing reports right now. You can only see if your family or pull your, your, your loved one out of a nursing home or a care facility if you all have been tested. And, and, and we have a number of uh, residents and care facilities that are just trapped in there that haven't seen their families for six, seven months, eight months now at this point. Going into this holiday, I, I'm telling you, the gateway for all that, that all things Michelle Lujan Grisham and Joe Biden is going through the government before you can do anything. Absolutely. And make no mistake, if you are following the legislature tomorrow, it's really simple. If someone votes to either hold the status quo on the governor's powers or even worse, expand them, that means they support these breadlines. It's just that simple. It, 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 the, the fact that not a single that I've seen member of the House Democrats has come out and said this isn't right. How many of their constituents are standing in line? It is all about driving you towards government dependency and what can happen. But let's to illustrate your point. Let's talk about the last couple of months. So you mentioned, you know, the job situation. New Mexico, as we sit here today, has the 43rd worst employment situation in the country. Those numbers just came out. And so at 43rd worst, what does that mean? That means that every other state, even those that are dealing, you know, with uh, various types of lockdowns are doing a better job than New Mexico, except for seven of them. What is one that we can look at? You pointed to the energy jobs. New Mexico for the last two months has lost energy jobs. The sector that includes energy has lost them. And people will say, oh, well, that's just COVID. Oh, that, that's just the pandemic. That, that's what's going to happen. Then explain to me how Texas has increased their energy jobs over the past two months. I mean, it is not different geographically. We're, we're getting oil from roughly the same place. Why is one side increasing jobs and the other side is not? And that is what this governor needs you to believe. When you're standing in the food line, when you're having trouble making ends meet, when your business is hurting, she needs you to believe it's all about the pandemic. The fact of the matter let, is... Let me stop you on that and just ask sure. you a question. Since this is your bailiwick, this is uh, your wheelhouse. 
When it comes to energy, was there a direct correlation between the number of jobs that were lost in the state of New Mexico and the jobs that were gained in West Texas? You know, I would I would have to look at the numbers. I would say that Texas actually probably added a little more than was lost here in New Mexico. But I think your question is is a good one of and one I need to look at now is if I was an employee in Hobbs, have I just gone across the border into Seminole, Texas to work now with the environment similar? I can tell you the energy jobs as we sit here today in New Mexico are at their lowest point since I want to say August 2010 since the last eco-leftist governor was in office, right? And so the fact of the matter is, though, it's just not a friendly environment for energy here in New Mexico. And that bleeds to all the other things. I mean, I'm almost hesitant to talk about it because, you know, restaurant workers, every industry in every part of the state is hurting now unless, you know, your name is Walton or Jeff Bezos. You know, every everybody's pocketbook is hurting. And so, but to your point, the energy jobs have increased in Texas where they're dealing with the same pandemic. And so um, whether those were former New Mexican workers is a good question. I, I haven't heard anecdotally or seen data on it yet. I can only tell you that they are increasing their energy jobs, backbone of our economy, and we are losing ours. So back to people leaving and businesses leaving New Mexico and going to Texas, Colorado, Utah, Arizona, uh, across that fan of the uh, closest. And, and they're not suffering. None of those states that I just mentioned are suffering. Maybe Colorado just a little bit. And, and they have some widespread uh, COVID-19 numbers. We're two weeks away from the vaccine. And I have advised last week to people, just go ahead and go out and live your life. And many people have taken that advice that they decided to go ahead and leave. But now now it's not going to be just temporary, as you're hearing, and maybe the information is just anecdotal. We've been talking about it for some time. It could be actually uh, the data could drive right behind it. The number of jobs that have been lost in Texas or gained in Texas could be directly reflected and just going right across the border and saying, you know, to uh, there will be blood. I drink your milkshake. Texas could start taking right there in the Permian Basin until we change our regulations. Uh, this is really bad for the future of New Mexico because as you have consistently pounded upon is just telling people we have anywhere from 35 to 45 percent of our budget on any given year, which is directly coming from New Mexico oil and gas to pay for education, to pay for any government program that has been implemented. This is going to bankrupt the state of New Mexico. It absolutely is. There has been no discussion on how we're going to replace 40 percent of our budget. There just hasn't been. And and every, and, you know, wacko environmentalist doesn't have an answer for that. They just start to hem and haw and say, oh, shucks, even though they have billions of dollars behind them, they're not putting any money into it. But your point is well taken. You know, even though people are discouraged from traveling, one of the reasons my kids' school shut down and they're not in school today is because, and they won't be until January at the earliest, is because the school district surveyed the teachers and found that 40% of the teachers are going to leave the state for Thanksgiving. And to your point, what happens when somebody does that? They go to Arizona. They'll go to the Mesa area. They'll go to Texas. They'll go up to Colorado. And they'll see that, oh, my gosh, we don't have to live like we're living in New Mexico. We don't have to be under these lockdowns. We can be back to a normal life, still protecting ourselves and still making a difference. For some reason, New Mexico wants to have people under their thumb even more and more and more. And then the next conversation on that is, well, how do we how do we do 
this permanently? How do we make it so that we don't have to what's going on in New Mexico anymore? And then the seeds start to get planted about, well, maybe I can find a job here. Maybe my work, you know, my boss has said telecommuting is good. Well, exactly. I'll just telecommute from another state. And so those are the things that, you know, and, and it's unfortunate for many reasons. Number one is you lose those people who would have been here otherwise generating the economy of New Mexico. But number two, those are the people who have the jobs that can afford to leave. You know, the waitresses, so many of the, you know, the workers that the progressive left claims to want to protect the poor and working families of New Mexico, they don't have that mobility that everyone else seems to have so that when, you know, they are stuck here under these mandates and under these rules and it's harmful. And the, it boils down to this for the governor to be right. She needs you to believe that COVID is a hundred percent cause of all the problems in New Mexico. The fact of the matter is every other state is dealing with COVID 43 of them are doing a better job of it. It's not just COVID. It is, um, I mean, I can't think of a stronger word, but it needs to be stronger than neglect and just gross mismanagement of a state. And that's what we're seeing. And, and to the point that we started out with, they are absolutely tone deaf and clueless about what it is doing to their constituents. They they engage in these conspiracy theories that says, oh, those lines don't exist. Those are just, you know, Republicans talking. Right. I mean, it, it is absolutely insane. Yeah, it is. And the fact that she doesn't acknowledge that reality, I think, is the biggest telltale point that will tell that tells the people of the state of New Mexico that Michelle Lujan Grisham is hell bent on an agenda, agenda driven um, agenda, right? Uh, on behalf of the Democrat Party across this country. There's make no mistake about it. Tomorrow on the very same day that we have our special session, uh, Joe Biden, uh, according to all the other liberal news, the president elect, I don't call him that. Joe Biden, the crooked, uh, and I'm all about boycotting Biden on everything, regardless if he takes the, um, you know, the, the, the presidency or not. But I will tell you, Larry, that she may get announced tomorrow as either the Health and Human Services Secretary or the Department of Homeland uh, Security uh, Services Secretary. Could they, could you imagine that type of thing? That would tell you exactly, and the people of New Mexico, as we've been hearing all about Deborah Hall and her being the Secretary of the Interior, it's like this woman couldn't even pass the bar three times, and you're going to go ahead and do that? It's absolutely ridiculous. Let me let me share something with you uh, very quickly. This came from Greg Schmidt's, uh earlier uh, today. He says, highlights for New Mexico COVID relief bill to be considered Tuesday. Number one, it enables a lockdown. I'm not sure what he means by that, but I'm imagining that it's putting more teeth to give her more power. Number two, gives the yeah. governor more money. We already know that we can't trust this governor with more money. Allows, allows a planned parenthood bailout. Spends money from savings account when we have plenty in the checking account. Creates slush fund for MLG and encourages government dependency through dishonest unemployment scheme. I'd like to kind of start from the top. Let's talk about how the legislature might come in and further enable a lockdown. And then I'll come over the top of that with some of the information that I heard on Saturday. Yeah, and, and just so, and, and I, I, I hesitate to mention it, but it's a, a source that I usually trust. They've said that today Biden has named Mayorkas as Homeland Security Secretary. And so that's, he's starting to trot out some of those names to your point. But you're exactly right. And, and we talked about it earlier. What could be in this bill is probably nothing short of expanding the governor's uh, power to do things. And I, I point to what you said earlier. She put down an order last week and then three days later had to quote unquote tighten it. 
right? And, and why do you have to tighten it? Because businesses are actually reading it. And if they can find a way that it doesn't apply to them, then they will use those loopholes. Yeah, so, Larry, that's good. You know, on Friday, it was really interesting. Um, there's a bar, it's called Stoneface Tavern. They mm -hmm. found those loopholes and they stayed open till two in the morning without any restrictions. And there were a couple of other bars in town that also did that because they knew they had the shutdown that was coming that was going to take place on, on that Monday morning. So to your point, that's exactly right. Yeah. And, and, and how it works is exactly how you said it works. You'll get a visit from a state police officer or, or department of health worker saying, Hey, you know, you're violating this. And what they'll say is like, no, this is how I read it. And next thing you know, you have changes coming out. So that tells me two things. One is her reset order was rushed through. They didn't really think about how it would impact. Two is they just want things closed down. And they're working within the perimeters of the law and reaching into every nook and cranny they can to find the authority to shut things down. And then three, it's going to be they already know that there's sectors and things that they would love to shut down and have more control over today right now. But the law doesn't allow. Make no mistake. That is what is going into this bill to give her the authority within those. And something you need to watch for. It's a it's a, a, a term used at the legislature a whole lot is the emergency clause. And the emergency clause means that it becomes law as soon as the governor signs it. If there is a bill with an emergency clause in it, which these will have to have if they want to, quote, unquote, get the money out soon, it will also allow her to have that authority right away or any governor to have that authority right away. I mean, it's, you know, to your point, how many weeks before we may not have a governor, Lujan Grisham, here in New Mexico? And so it's expanding the power of the governor's office that I guarantee they would not do if there was a Republican in there. And that's how you know this has nothing to do with public health. It is 100 percent politics. They want more power. They want to be able to do more things. And New Mexicans, I, I think, are going to have to, to stand up for it. So, Larry, how do these businesses fight back? We saw what happened in uh, Buffalo, and I think it was very, very telling as to how businesses can stand up. It no longer is the politicians. We've seen the results of this election. It has to be the people. We have to be able to push forward. But I got to tell you, I was taken uh, aback once I saw how those Buffalo business owners were reacting to what was happening in New York State. And with uh, Cuomo at the helm, he's every bit as bad as Michelle Lujan Grisham. Michelle mm -hmm. Lujan Grisham just has a a control over a small a smaller uh, population portion. Yeah, absolutely. And but make no mistake, they're stealing ideas from each other, right? Whenever I see Governor Newsom out in California do something that we haven't done here in New Mexico, I get worried because you can almost kind of like the virus, time it a week or two, and the governor's going to bring it to New Mexico. But to your point, how do they fight back? And and it's immensely hard. I could tell you that if I were a business. It would be very difficult for me for something that I've worked to build and that I care about to to fight in such a way. But as we saw in Buffalo, it worked at least for a little while, right? You had the state health worker along with the county sheriff showing up. And it was on a group of business owners discussing how to comply with the governor's orders. They were discussing how to best do that. And they came and busted that meeting because it was more than 10 people. And they, they simply asked two questions. Where is your warrant? And please leave until you get a warrant. And they try to get into the middle ground. Well, this is the code enforcement. So I'm not a lawyer and I don't want to play one on the radio. But I can tell you in Buffalo, the standing up to them and saying a bureaucrat out of Santa Fe does not control what I do right now. And 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 standing up to, you know, and, and it has to be a critical mass because we, we've seen what happens when one stands out here, one stands out there. They're on the news. Next thing you know, the state police 
are there. And I can tell you, I've talked with people who had to face some of these state police officers and they'll ask them, they'll say, you know, do you personally, I, I understand you have a job to do and, and this is what you've been told to do, but do you personally agree with this? And I would argue many of our law enforcement officers are uncomfortable having to enforce these public health orders. And I mean, in fact, I think you were the one that got the tip that said, you know, her probably her New Mexico state police chief resigned because he didn't want to enforce the mask order. The, you know, I can't imagine that serving public health orders, killing jobs and putting people out of business is why an officer goes to law enforcement school and why they get into the business. They get into it to protect the community. And I, I can't imagine that um, enforcing public health orders, especially when uh, you know it appears nonsensical, I, I don't know how someone is okay standing in line for over an hour next mixing dozens upon dozens of households, but then you can't choose who can come into your house for Thanksgiving. It is nonsensical uh, across the, you know, uh, across the board. New Me the, the biggest problem we have in my mind, Eddie, is New Mexico is seeing just absolutely disastrous consequences of what is happening. Food lines, unemployment, and we have elected representatives that aren't fighting it that that so, don't so even have th to there's two reactions to this there's one they don't even have to to react to it no one's putting them on the exactly. the, the spot about it of saying uh, you know if, if nothing well, else, we are it, it, I, you are and, and 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 you know i can call it mine but i know mine are, are, are putting up a fight against it I, I i mean know your representatives and ask them call them at the the roundhouse communicate with them are you okay with these bread lines are you okay with this let that be in their mind as they go, you know, either in front of their computer or at the roundhouse um, tomorrow to expand the governor's power of like, I have so many of my constituents who are upset. Uh, if I expand her power, it's only going to get worse. They, you know, I, I can tell you, and we've talked about it in 2016, if Donald Trump tweeted something that the media got worked up about, Susanna Martinez had to react to it yet. Governor Grisham can shut down the whole entire state, put us on house for every disastrous thing we've talked about. I haven't heard from Brian Egoff how he feels about the bread lines. I haven't heard from Peter Worth. All I see is them celebrating their new leadership. And by golly, we're going to get this, you know, your tax dollars back to you. And we're going to take credit for it because that's what defines leadership in New Mexico, I guess. Yeah, it's uh, giving away money and we'll lock you down. But, hey, here's free money. And, hey, we'll take this freedom away from you. But, hey, here's some money. Here's a snap card. Here's whatever we can possibly do for you. They will buy your freedom if you will comply. And too many people in the state of New Mexico has complied. Those people who don't pick up and leave, they go to Texas, Arizona, Colorado, and they will continue to go ahead and leave along with their money, along with Solar House. This is probably the most disastrous week in the history of this state economically because this puts the final nail in the coffin for so many people, I'm, I'm afraid to say. And it's hard to speak truth to power uh, since I'm standing on my own, but I, there's nothing else for me to do at this point, nothing else for you to do. This is literally fighting for what's left, and I think people need to realize the seriousness of this situation. When I put out the, you know, hey, let's go ahead and and uh, seize or raid Jeffrey Epstein. We got 250 signatures. Everybody wanted to do it, but nobody wanted to put their name on it, so it was hard to convince people. We finally submit that stuff. It never goes anywhere, right? They still haven't even admitted, uh, submitted that stuff in the county of Santa Fe. That's how deep the corruption is. On top of that, Larry, what else did we do? We had an impeach MLG, 13,000 people, and we had a bunch of naysayers, particularly in the Republican Party, saying, you can't impeach her, you can't impeach her, you can't. What else is there? You had to impeach her. If you did not not impeach her if you did not 
take back the house, uh, then, then there you go. Uh, you don't have a say in any of this stuff. So what is it? You don't want to get in trouble? These businesses in Buffalo, what they're doing, that's courageous. We need the same type of courage from each and every person out there in the state of New Mexico to defy the governor at every point. Get a warrant. Do whatever you possibly can to go ahead and shut me down. But I'm not shutting down my business. I'm not shutting down, especially since we're two weeks away from a vaccine. And we can go ahead and take care of every every man, woman, and child because, hey, we're one of the first four states in the entire country that is on the um, – the early Pfizer test or the early phase of this phasing in. Yeah. And, and to those business owners, and I think and you've, you've clarified it for me as well. Those business owners, that would part of what I would say to them is, did you think a year ago that you would be having to do business like that? Did you think six months ago? Did you think two months ago you would have to be, it is slowly getting worse and worse. And we are all slowly tolerating things that we couldn't have dreamed of tolerating, but because it's been slowly ramped up, right? We've, you know, we've, we've taken it and adjusted to it. And on the flip side of that, she, you know, doesn't offer carrots, but there is an awful big stick. The first person to stick their head out there like whack-a-mole gets smacked down. And so there is risk in that, but I would argue to them, you're not operating your business in the way that you designed to operate your business. They are only going to make it worse for you. What do you have to lose by standing up? If your argument right. is, I could lose my business, I, I, I'm worried that people are on that road anyway. And would you rather just quietly lock up the doors and say goodbye to it? Or would you like to stand with a few people who are going to just start to say enough is enough? Yeah, that's exactly right. Uh, Larry, that uh, leads me to the final cap, I think, that we want to talk about. You got published uh, uh, this week, and, of course, you're in our uh, media site, www.rockoftalk.chat. Everybody can go there and read your article. But this country is going to look, uh, look a, an awful lot like New Mexico if we keep doing what we're doing. Absolutely. I mean, it's no secret. Uh, Joe Biden has tapped Michelle Lujan Grisham for a leadership situation in his potential administration. And the fact of the matter is, I mean, did, you know, a year ago and, you know, you and I, I was trying to think you and I were talking about we're worried about higher taxes. We're worried about higher electric bills. We're worried about these things that the governor could do. We had no idea that it was going to be this bad this quickly our budget surplus squandered and that is the right word the democrats will balk at that but it is absolutely the right word we've sent more of it to you know harvey weinstein's companies than we have to new mexico school children that's a squandered budget surplus we've had to ask the federal government for loans the only money it seems that we can spend now is money that is bequeathed to us from washington dc that's the only way we can do it Record high unemployment in the energy sector, massive unemployment in every other sector of the state. We are having to stand in line for food. There is no way any of us picture it would get this bad this quickly under this governor. And the responses have been absolutely just stunning. Not even a shred of responsibility for what is going on in New Mexico. They say it's a talk, Republican talking points. They shift blame. They blame Trump. They don't want to take responsibility for anything that they have ever done that has a bad result. At some point, New Mexicans are going to have to hold this governor and her administration accountable, not for what they say their intentions are, but what they are, but what the results are that they're getting for New Mexicans. And so the fact that that could be promoted and exported nationwide should scare every American because New Mexicans know the reality of what could happen. People need to understand that there's two ways to react to this. You can stay and uh, deal with 
you know, the tyranny, or you can go ahead and pick up and leave. Certainly, the University of New Mexico Lobo football team, they moved to Las Vegas, Nevada. The University of New Mexico basketball team, I think the New Mexico State Aggies as well, they all moved to Texas. It seems like even our own teams that are state-sponsored are even picking up and leaving. And uh, you saw what happened when 35 to 45% of our industry has decided to go ahead and pick up and leave. And where did they decide to go? They went to Texas. So it looks like uh, New Mexico is left for itself. And even the governor herself is going to pick up and leave New Mexico to go to Washington, D.C. Absolutely. And let's be honest, you know, how many uh, of those New Mexicans like myself are fortunate enough to still have their jobs, still be able to work? And and we've discovered that maybe we don't need to be in this location to do it. So I can still maybe do my job just as effectively and, and choose another place to be. How many New Mexicans are making that choice right now to say, you know what, if I could if I could telecommute from down the street, why do I have to be down the street? Why don't I go to the place I really like? I could still telecommute. And my governor has told me it's just as effective. And uh, it's effective enough for our us to hold sessions right. with, right? Our legislative right. sessions, effective enough yeah. for our the, kids the to The legislators don't have to go to Santa Fe. Uh, Michelle Lujan Grisham doesn't have to go to the office, and then she can pick up and move to D.C. Our Lobo football teams can't, are the only uh, team in the entire country that doesn't play in its own stadium. I mean, mm-hmm. we are the Petri dish for the communist, Democrat-style installation, and it's happening here. New Mexico is indeed ground zero. You know, and and as I thought about that this week, you know, something that I was, I, I'm sure you saw to, to protest. I was glad to see them. I was glad to see them stand up because there are those who feel like we do that we are uh, under the thumb. If I can make just one small recommendation yes. for the next time, and and I'll you know I'll definitely see if I can be there. Join them. Take it to the governor's residence. She lives on a public street. There's no one at the roundhouse right now. They're all telecommuting. Take it to her residence. Let her see. Yep. And let let the people there see how many New Mexicans are being hurt under her policies. She's got a big gate, and I'm not advocating for anything crazy. But I can tell you, if you're standing outside the roundhouse, you know she's sitting on her ivory tower back at the residence, really not worried about anything. Um, there is an opportunity if you are on, you know, marching up and down her street to get more of an impression. I, and I guarantee you, and Tifa would do it to Susanna Martinez. Larry, thank you so much for being here. I appreciate you very much and everything that you do. Back up to the top of the hour news right here in the Kiva, AMC Theater, TIVA, 93.7 FM. The web, the app, rockatalk.com. That's rockatalk.com. Check out Larry Barrett. Powerthefuture.org. That's powerthefuture.org and powerthefuture.com. There we go. I appreciate that very so much. Thanks, everybody, for listening. And as always, make sure you visit that website, www.rockatalk.com. Well, I'm both above you in its AM 1600 KIVA and 93.7 FM. Good afternoon, everybody. 505 in the 505 right here in the Kiva. And I appreciate you guys all being here. This is going to be the most important segment 
prior to tomorrow's legislative session, and I think maybe the most important segment of the year. I have some really interesting info to convey to you over the next 40 minutes that I want everybody to go ahead and listen to. And uh, with that being said, I want you to listen to a doctor by the name of uh, Mike Yurden. He's a British doctor, and this is what he's basically going to go through for the next 32 minutes. And as you all know that this COVID infections all started in, you know, March and April. And you notice that all the infections were basically falling during that time. And there wasn't any lockdowns. We didn't have lockdowns most of these places. And the lockdowns just started mostly in October. And there's a reason for that. Uh, there's a government response that is being run by a group of scientists, a group of a few doctors here and there, but no immunologist. And it's called SAGE. And their recommendations have had terrible, bad economic effects. They've had bad health effects. And people need to realize that COVID-19 is similar, 80% similar to SARS, as you'll find out. Um, similarities are, if you will, to the common cold. Uh, there is substantial immunity, and Dr. Yurden's going to talk about this, because there was a doctor by the name of Edward Jenner some time ago, about 120 years ago, and he was subjecting people to cowpox. And he did an experiment uh, with a little boy. And this little boy, uh, he gave him the cowpox uh, infection and to think that it would you know, work on smallpox. It's called cross-immunization. So he, he gave the, the, the cowpox. The little boy was infected by the cowpox. And guess what? He did not get smallpox because of the cross-immunization. And he infected this, this boy. Then he tested the little boy after infecting him directly with smallpox. And the boy did not get that. So hopefully you'll understand what cross-immunization means. Michael Yurden will explain that. And I think we also need to talk about the managed care and the PPE. Uh, understanding that one out of every 30 people have the common cold, which would suggest that you are immune from the COVID-19 virus. And basically, here's how. SAGE says you have zero immunity from the COVID-19. You're effectively protecting yourself the entire time from something that you don't need to necessarily protect yourself from. Because many of you, through that same understanding of cross-immunization, have protection from COVID-19. Now, with that being said, people need to understand that that cross-immunization doesn't just work for that. It works for many other things. Your body has been able to develop ways, if it's recognized a danger to its system before, it pushes back against us. They also say, SAGE does, that there's roughly 7% infected by the virus. Michael Yearden also um, disagrees with that. According to some of the information that he will suggest in this, there's 65% have antibodies, okay? Many of the news reports that are coming out right now are saying that these antibodies are fading. So they keep pitching stuff all the time that's saying, well, you're going to have to get in, you know, re-immunized every single year and this or re-vaccinated every single year. Top scientists and doctors that Michael Yearden deals with disagree with this. Now, People also need to understand that we are not putting proper science and immunology behind this. 
proper science immunology will talk about T-cell immunity. We are not talking about that. Michael Yurden suggests that the pandemic is over, but yet this, this group, SAGE, continues to be in control. On their board, the decision-making board for SAGE, they do not have an immunologist. Now, one of the things that they're using to continue to go ahead and spread and increase the number of, of people who are infected, if you will, is they're for, uh, forcing people to take what's called a PCR virus test, okay? In this test, they are not looking for the virus. They're just looking for RNA. Now, this is a problem because if you're not looking for the virus, if you're just looking for the RNA, you're not looking for the actual virus in and of itself. And most of you have reported, many of you have reported over time that at some time in the past, you have had this. You know that, that you had this. And this is essentially a dead virus that is detected. So if you've had it in the past, you will come up and register as a positive. This would not hold up in a um, court of law, let's just say this, because this is basically a forensic test. This tested at, so if you're infected now, or excuse me, if, if you test positive now, you automatically think that you're infected and you're not. This is a forensic test. This would only suggest that maybe sometime in the past you could have had it, not that you did have it. It's very interesting. And what you need to understand is the more that we test, the more people we detect will have had it or could have had it. This does not hold up legally. Um, this test, this PCR test, also produces positives without actually being positive, if you follow what I'm saying. So we have all these people who are asymptomatic, and these people are testing positive. What asymptomatic people, asymptomatic people do you think go and get tested? Why would you get tested for anything? Think of a sexually transmitted disease. Unless you actually had sores or something along those lines, why would you go get tested for something? Think about it that way. That's exactly what, what we are doing. This is creating errors all over the place because we're not actually testing for a live virus. We're testing for the fact that you could have had it or you may have it. And as you know, the ICU increases that are happening are naturally happening this time every single year. Okay, October through February, this is when the flu season starts. This is when all that time. So ICU uh, are generally in, increased uh, during this time um, naturally because of the, the flu season. This is normal. This is no different than in the past. But if we keep on testing the way that we are using this PCR test, we are going to continue to have the problem. The solution to all this is to stop the testing. This thing has taken on a pathology all its own. So, for example, if we were to teach uh, to test one million people with the false positives that come from the PCR test, and just at a very minimum, 1%, that would give us an infection of 10,000. 10,000. And people need to understand that the immunity that comes with it isn't happening because you've already had it. The, Im the immunity comes because of something called T-cell immunity. That is the proper form of, of medical immunity or your body's immunity. The antibodies don't matter at all. That's not what's important. What's Im important is the T-cell immunity. Your body remembers what it has fought off in the past. Now, one of the things that Michael Yurden talks about also in this is... Understanding that your immunity 
isn't going to be months. It's going to be years. This will not fall off in months, despite what the news is telling you. And in fact, because of this cross-immunity that I just talked about, at a minimum, what Michael Yerden is suggesting, that you're going to have somewhere between 15 to 20 years, if not lifelong, immunity to this COVID-19 virus. The evidence is all there, he's suggesting. And you'll find this guy to be extremely, extremely credible. He talks about this for about 32 minutes. And these people who are coming out and suggesting that they're infected twice or getting tested and infected twice, Michael Yearden says that these people have a rare immunodeficiency disease. Okay? I mean, similar to AIDS, uh, if you will, uh, autoimmune uh, deficiency disease. And the COVID uh, virus is oftentimes overestimated, like any virus. This is going to, it's always overestimated. It's always overstated. The COVID fatality rate is about the same as the seasonal flu, which is why you don't see an overall rise in the number of deaths in an aggregate collectively against any population. People need to understand that these lockdowns, the cost benefit is way too high, especially since there's not going to be increased fatalities. It's no more than the flu. It's unrealistic uh, at this time. These lockdowns are a con. The infection rates are about the same regardless whether or not we lock down or not. Nothing we do, nothing we do will reduce the number of people who are ultimately going to be affected. The reason why you're seeing the huge increase in infections is because of this massive PCR testing that is going on. The more tests that you do, the more infections that you're going to have. And many of you are getting tested regardless of whether or not you have symptoms. So you're going in, you're feeling, you're saying, well, I didn't feel sick, I didn't feel sick, I'm going to get tested just to see where I'm at. Well, guess what? That false PCR test will come up as an infection, as an infection. So there's no evidence right now that suggests that anything will do anything to reduce it. This is a natural process. We all must go through it. In fact, the actual number is 0.06% of the total population, which is, again, no more than the seasonal flu. Now, Michael Yearden talks about, Dr. Michael Yearden talks about uh, this being basically like clearing out part of the forest. This is a natural tinder, a dry tinder, uh, if you will. And you'll hear him start to talk about that. So what you're going to see and what you're going to hear in the next 30 minutes is talking about track, tracking and tracing. Nothing that we do in our own puny efforts is going to help anything that we do. The lockdowns, whether in the past or this one now, have never worked at any time. People should be fired, which includes your governor, Michelle Lujan Grisham, which includes Dr. Disgrace, which includes everybody who is advocating for this. These people should be relieved of their duties. And at this point, Michael, Dr. Michael Reardon asked, can we pull ourselves back from the brink of all of these negative effects and the disastrous effects that we have committed to? So take a listen. Please share this with everybody. Follow it at www.rockoftalk.chat. I want you to stay close. So listen to this in its entirety, please. I think it's so incredibly important that you listen to this and understand that we are being run by a government response group called SAGE, ironically enough, which is anything but wise. My name is Dr. Michael Yeaton. My original training was a first-class honours degree in biochemistry and toxicology, followed by a research-based 
PhD into respiratory pharmacology. And after that, I've worked my entire life uh, on the research side of the pharmaceutical industry, both big pharma and also biotech. My specific focus has been inflammation, immunology, allergy, uh, in the context of respiratory diseases, so the lung, but also the skin. So I would say I'm a kind of a deeply experienced inflammation, immunology, pulmonology kind of research person. I initially became concerned about the, our response to the coronavirus pandemic towards the middle or back end of April, as early as that. It had become clear that if you look at the number of daily deaths versus, versus the date, the pandemic had turned and really pleasingly already. The wave was fundamentally over and we would just watch it fall for a number of months, which is what it did. And so I became very perturbed about increasing restrictions on the behavior and movement of, of people in my country. And I could see no reason for it then and I still don't. Government's response to emergencies is guided by you know, the scientific group who sit uh, together under the Strategic Advisory Group for Emergencies or SAGE. So they should provide scientific advice to the government about what's appropriate to do. SAGE has, has got several fundamental things wrong and that has led to advice that's inappropriate and uh, not only has had horrible economic effects but has had continuing of medical effects in that people are no longer being treated properly. SAGE took the view that since SARS-CoV-2 was a quote new virus that they believed there wouldn't be any immunity at all in the population. So I think that's the first thing. I remember hearing that and, and I puzzled because I, I already knew because I read the scientific literature that SARS-CoV-2 is 80% similar to another virus you may have heard of called SARS that moved around the world a bit in 2003 and more than that it's quite similar in pieces of it to common cold causing coronaviruses so when I heard that there was this coronavirus moving across the world I I wasn't as worried as perhaps other people were because I figured that since uh, there are four common cold causing coronaviruses I figured that quite a lot of the population would be exposed to one of those viruses and would probably have a perhaps substantial protective immunity and just to explain why I was so confident, everybody knows the story of Edward Jenner and vaccination and the story of cowpox and smallpox and that the sort of old story was that milkmaids had very uh, clear complexions, they never suffered from things like smallpox that if it didn't kill you would leave your skin permanently scarred. And the reason that they had the protection was that they were exposed to a more benign related virus called cowpox. Edward Jenner came up with the idea that if it's cowpox that saves the fair maid, he reasoned that if he could give another person an exposure to the cowpox, he would be able to protect them from smallpox. Now, he did an experiment that you can't do now, and he never should have done it, but apocryphally or really, or maybe real, we're not sure, Edward Jenner acquired some of the liquid from uh, a person infected with cowpox, and relatively mild pustules that then go away. And he got some of this and he, he scraped it into the skin of a small boy. And a few weeks later, he obtained some liquid from some poor person that was dying of smallpox and infected the boy. And lo and behold, the boy did not get ill. And that gave birth to the whole field uh, of what's called vaccination. And vax, the vax, it's VAC, it comes from vacus, 
the Latin name for cow. So we are really familiar with the principle of cross immunization. I've thought quite a lot about you know, the vulnerable people in, in care homes and there's an awareness that even though people are really careful and using PPE and, and so on, but that's only going to go so far in a, in a you know, kind of hot house environment where people are pretty close together in a care home. So the question I've had all year is once one or two people you know, got the virus in a care home, why wouldn't almost everyone get infected? And of course, the, the truth is they didn't. And one interpretation of that distinction is that a large proportion of people in the care homes had prior immunity. At this time of year, about one in 30 people have a cold caused by one of these coronaviruses. And just like the protection against smallpox provided by previous exposure to cowpox, so people exposed to having had a cold caused by one of these coronaviruses, they're now immune to SARS-CoV-2. So 30% of the population was protected before we start. SAGE said it was zero, and I don't understand how they could possibly have justified that. There's a second and equally fatal unaccountable error that they have made in their model. The percentage of the population that SAGE asserts have been infected to date by the virus is about 7%. I know that that's what they believe and you can see it in a document they published in September called Non-Pharmaceutical Interventions and it says uh, sadly more than 90% of the population is still vulnerable. It's unbelievably wrong and I'm just going to explain why. They've based their number on the percentage of people in the country who have antibodies in their blood. And only the people who became most ill needed to actually develop and release antibodies around their body. So it is certainly true that the people who have lots of antibody were, were infected. But a very large number of people had milder symptoms and even more people had none at all. And the best estimates that we can arrive at is that those people either made no antibodies or so low amounts that they will have faded from now. Recent publication on the percentage of care home residents who have antibodies to the virus was very, very interesting. This time they were using high sensitivity tests for antibodies and they carefully picked out residents that never were PCR positive. These were people who never got infected and they found that 65% of them had antibodies to the virus they never got infected. So I, I believe there was high prevalence of immunity in that population prior to the virus arriving. Big story in the media recently was that the percentage of people with antibodies against the virus in their blood was falling. Now, this was cast as a concern that immunity to SARS-CoV-2 doesn't last very long. Well, you know, anyone with knowledge of immunity would, would just simply reject that. It's not the way immunity to virus works. That would be T-cells. So if the antibodies are falling gradually over time, which they have from spring to present, the only plausible explanation is that the prevalence of the virus in the population is falling, and that's why the antibody production gradually subsides. Less than 40% of the population are susceptible. Even theoretical epidemiologists would tell you that that's too small a number to support a consolidated and growing outbreak. Community immunity, herd immunity. So SAGE says that we're not even close and I'm telling you that the best science by the best scientists in the world 
published in the top peer-reviewed journals, says they're wrong, that more than 60% of the population are now immune, and it's simply not possible to have a, a large and growing pandemic. Really good news, genuine good news to hear that there's data emerging from the vaccine clinical trials. And we are seeing uh, vaccines that raise not just antibodies, but they're also uh, producing T-cell responses. This is great. Back to proper science, proper immunology. That's how immunity to viruses works. So my surprise, though, and it's just annoying, that when we're talking about uh, the percentage of the population that's still susceptible, we only talk about antibodies, like 7% from SAGE. Why are we not talking about the 50% that have got T-cell immunity? And so you might be thinking, if Mike Eden, Dr. Mike Eden, is telling you these things, well, how come the pandemic isn't over? Well, this may come as a surprise to you, but I, I believe fundamentally it is over. The country has experienced almost a complete cycle now of the virus sweeping through the land, and we are at the end of it. London was, was horribly affected in the spring and somewhere in early April they were experiencing several hundred deaths per day from people dying with similar symptoms, you know, respiratory failure and uh, inflammation. And at the moment the number of people dying of SARS-CoV-2 in the capital is less than 10, so it's, it's down by 98% or something like that. And the reason it's down is because there are now too few people in London susceptible to allow the virus to magnify, to amplify, to get an epidemic. And, and they would have been hit by now because they were the first place hit in the spring. And I think what we're seeing now in the northeast and the northwest would be the dying embers of the spreading out of this virus. And I'm very sorry that it is still true that a small number of people are catching it, getting ill and dying. So why aren't the media telling us that the pandemic is over. It's not over because SAGE says it's not. So SAGE consists of very many scientists from a range of disciplines, uh, mathematicians and clinicians, and there are multiple committees. But I found to my surprise, and I'm actually going to use the word horror, that in the spring, all the way through the spring and summer, SAGE did not have on their committee someone who I would call a card-carrying immunologist, a clinical immunologist. I have to say, I think that in the spring and summer, SAGE was deficient in the expertise it had. They should have armed themselves you know, with, around the table, all the people required to, to understand what was happening, and they didn't do that. People ask me then, well, Mike, if it's, you know, if it's fundamentally over, why are we still getting hundreds of deaths a day from SARS-CoV-2? Uh, and I've thought a lot about this. There is a test that's performed. People have their noses and tonsils swabbed and then a test called a PCR test is performed on that. And it, what they're looking for isn't the virus. You might think it's looking for the virus, but it's not. What they're looking for is a small piece of genetic sequence. It's called RNA. Unfortunately, that bit of RNA will be found in people's tonsils and nose not if they've just caught the virus and they're about to get ill or they're already ill. It's also going to be found if they were infected previously, weeks or even sometimes a small number of months ago. Let me just explain why that is. If you've been infected and you've fought off the virus, which most people do, you'll have broken, dead bits of virus. These are tiny things, smaller than your cells, perhaps spread all the way through your airway, embedded in bits of mucus, maybe inside an airway lining cell. And so over a period of weeks or months, 
you bring up cells that contain broken dead pieces of the virus that you have conquered and killed. However, the PCR test is not able to detect whether the viral RNA has come from a living virus or a dead one as I've just described. So I think a large proportion of the so-called positives are in fact what I call cold positives. They're correctly identifying that there is some viral RNA in the sample, but it's from a dead virus. It can't hurt them. They're not going to get ill. They can't transmit it to anybody else, so they're not infectious. So that accounts for a large number of the so-called positive cases. These are people who've beaten the virus. Why are we using this test that cannot distinguish between active infection and people who've conquered the virus. This test has never been used in this way and I've worked in this field. It's not a suitable technique, it's, a, it's the kind of technique you would use for forensic purposes. If you were trying to do a DNA test to establish whether or not a person was at the scene of a crime, you would not be doing these tests uh, by a windy supermarket car park in what looks like plastic marquee tents on picnic tables. It's not suitable at all, and it definitely shouldn't be done in the way it's being done. It's subject to many mechanical errors, shall we say, handling errors. If this was a test being used for legal purposes, for forensic purposes, like a DNA identity test, the judge would throw out this evidence, would say it's not admissible. It produces positives even when there's no virus there at all. We call that a false positive. As we've increased the number of tests done per day, so we've had to recruit less and less experienced laboratory staff, and now we're using people who've never worked professionally in this area. What that does is it increases the frequency of mistakes. And the effect of this is that the false positive rate rises and rises. So if you had a false positive rate of 1%, which Mr. Matt Hancock told us was roughly the number they had in the summer, then if you tested a thousand people that had no virus, 10 of them would be positive, astonishingly. If the prevalence of the virus was only one in a thousand, that's 0.1%, as the Office of National Statistics told us it was through the summer, then if you use the PCR test, only one of them will be positive and genuinely so. But if the false positive rate is as low as 1%, you'll also get 10 positives that are false. Some people did say to me, well, there'll be a higher percentage of people coming forward for testing in the community, so-called pillar two testing, because they've been instructed only to come if they've got symptoms. But I call BS on that one. I don't think that's true. I know lots of friends and relatives who've been told by an employer, well, you've sat near someone who's tested positive and I don't want you to come back to work until you've got a negative test. I've seen information uh, from many towns in the north, certainly Birmingham was one, Manchester was another, Bolton, where councils, and I really think they were trying to be helpful, were out leafleting the people of their cities saying we're going to come round and swab you all because we want to track down this virus. Now once you start testing people more or less randomly instead of having symptoms you get the same amount of virus in the population as the Office of National Statistics found, which is at the time was one in a thousand. And I've just told you, Matt Hancock confirmed during the summer, they had a false positive rate of about 1%. So that means out of a thousand people, 10 would test positive and it would be a false result. 
and only one were test positive and it was correct. This test is monstrously unsuitable for detecting who has live virus in their airway. It's subject to multiple distortions that are worsening as we get into the winter. As the number of tests done per day increase, the number of errors made by these overworked, not very experienced lab staff increase. I think it's not unreasonable to say a best guess of the false positive rate at the moment, what's called the operational false positive rate, is about 5%. 5% 5 of 300,000 is 15,000 positives. I think some of those positives are real. I don't think it's very many. Now the problem with this false positive issue, it doesn't just stop at, quotes, cases. It extends to people who are unwell and go to hospital. So people who go to hospital having tested positive, and it could be a false positive, and I think most of them are at the moment. If you go to hospital and you've tested positive previously or you test positive in hospital, you'll be counted now as a COVID admission. Although there are more people in hospital now than a month ago, this is normal for autumn, regrettably. People catch respiratory viruses and become ill and some will die. I just don't believe it's got anything to do with COVID-19 anymore. There are more people in intensive care beds now than they were a month or so ago. That's entirely normal as we move through late autumn and into the early winter, those beds become used. Uh, but there aren't more people than is normal for the time of year and we're not about to run out of capacity, certainly as a national level. But I think you know where this is going now. If you should now die, you'll be counted as a COVID death. But that's not correct. These are people who might have, have gone to hospital having had a broken leg, for example, but they'll, 3% of them will still test positive and they're not, they haven't got the virus. It's a, it's a false positive. And if they die, they'll be called a COVID death and they are not, they've died of something else. One of the most troubling things I've heard this year was Mr. Johnson telling us about the moonshot, testing everybody often, maybe every day, is the way out of this problem. I'm telling you it's the way to keep us in this problem. That number of tests is orders of magnitude higher than we're already testing now. And the false positive rate, however low it is, will be far too large to accept. It will produce an enormous number of false positives. What we should do is stop mass testing. Not only is it an affront to your liberty, it will not help at all. It will be immensely expensive and it will be a pathology all of its own. We'll be fighting of stupid people, mostly government ministers, I'm sorry to say, who, who are not numerous and do not understand statistics. If you test a million people a day with a test that produces 1% false positives, 10,000 people a day will wrongly be told they've got the virus. If the prevalence of the virus was, say, 0.1%, like the Office of National Statistics said it was in summer, then only a tenth of that number uh, 1,000 would correctly be identified. But you can't distinguish amongst the 11,000 who have genuinely got the virus and who are false positives. Moonshot, I think, will have a worse false positive rate. It's not fixable and it's not necessary either. The pandemic having passed through the population, not only of, of the UK, but of all of Europe and probably all of the world quite soon, it won't return. Why won't it return? Well, they've got T-cell immunity. We know this, it's been studied by the best cellular immunologists in the world. 
sometimes people will say, well, it looks like the immunity is starting to fade. You will sometimes see things like that. And when I saw the first headline like this, I, I remember being really quite confused because that's not the way immunology works. Just think about it for a moment. If that was how it worked, it could kill you and you had to fight it off. And if you had successfully done that, it somehow didn't leave a mark in your body. Well, it does leave a mark in your body. The way you fought it off involved certain pattern recognition receptors and has left you with, as it were, memory cells that remember what it was they fought off. And if they see that thing again, it's very easy for them to get those cells to work again in minutes or hours and they will protect you. So the most likely explanation is it'll last a long time. So I read a bit more about this so-called tailing off of immunity and I realized they were talking about antibodies. Just incorrect to, to think that antibodies and how long they stay up is a measure of immune protection against viruses. I mean, you can tell I'm, I don't agree with this. It's just there have been some classic experiments done on people who have inborn errors in parts of their immune system. And some of them have inborn errors that means they can't make antibodies. And guess what? They're, they are able to handle respiratory viruses the same as you and me. So I don't think it's harmful to have antibodies, although some people are worried about the potential for amplifying inflammation from antibodies. But, but my view is that they're, they're probably neutral and you definitely should not believe the story that because the antibody falls away, you've lost immunity. Again, that's just not the way the human immune system works. The most likely duration of immunity to a respiratory virus like SARS-CoV-2 is multiple years. Why do I say that? We actually have the data for a virus that swept through parts of the world 17 years ago called SARS. And remember, SARS-CoV-2 is 80% similar to SARS. So I think that's the best comparison that, that anyone can provide. The evidence is clear. These very clever cellular immunologists studied all the people they could get hold of who had survived SARS 17 years ago. They took a blood sample and they tested whether they responded or not to the original SARS, and they all did. They all have perfectly normal, robust T-cell memory. They were actually also protected against SARS-CoV-2 because it's so similar, this cross-immunity. So I would say the best data that exists is that immunity should be robust for at least 17 years. I think it's entirely possible that it is lifelong. The style of the responses of these people's T-cells were the same as if you've been vaccinated and then you come back years later to see has that immunity been retained. And so I think the evidence is really strong that the duration of immunity will be multiple years and possibly lifelong. There have been but a tiny handful of people who appear to have been infected twice. Now they're, they're very interesting and we, we need to know who they are and understand them very well. They've probably got uh, certain rare immune deficiency syndromes. So I'm not pretending no one ever gets reinfected, but I am pointing out that it's literally five people or maybe 50 people. But the World Health Organization estimated some weeks ago that 750 million people have been infected so far by SARS-CoV-2. That means most people are not being reinfected. And I can tell you why that is. It's normal. It's what happens with viruses, respiratory viruses. Some people have, have called for zero COVID as if it's some political slogan. And there are some people I've heard calling for it almost every day. They're completely unqualified to tell you anything. Something that's really important to know is that SARS-CoV-2, it's an unpleasant virus. There's no question about it. 
But it's not what you were told in spring. We were originally told that it would kill perhaps 3% of the people it infected, which is horrifying. That's 30 times worse than flu. We always overestimate the lethality of new infectious diseases when we're in the eye of the storm. I believe the true infection fatality ratio of COVID-19, the true threat to life is the same as seasonal flu. So there's no reason why you would want to try and drive COVID to zero. It's a nonsense. That's just not how biology is. And all the means I have heard uh, proposed as, as ways to get us there are much more damaging and, and pathological, I would say, than, than the virus itself. It's simply not possible to get rid of every single copy of the COVID-19 virus and the means to get you there would destroy society. Forget the cost, although it would be huge. It would destroy your liberty. You would need to not go out until you've been tested and have your result back. And I've, I have described how the false positive rate would, would just destroy it from a statistical perspective. So I don't believe it can be done. It's not scientifically realistic. It's not medically realistic. And it's not what we have ever done. As the virus swept towards the UK in the, in the late winter and early spring, I too was concerned because at the time we were told perhaps 3% might die. So when the Prime Minister called for a lockdown, I wasn't pleased about it, but I understood that we should try this. But it's important that you understand that when we look at the profile of the pandemic as it passed through the population, that it was clear that the number of infections every day was falling. We'd passed the peak quite a long time before lockdown started. So we took all that pain, that lockdown pain, which was multiple weeks, I don't remember exactly how many, multiple weeks, we took it for nothing. If there was a really important effect of lockdown on the number of people who died or the rate of it, you should at least be able to order them like these people had lockdown and these didn't. And you cannot. All heavily infected countries' shapes are the same, whether they had lockdown or not. They don't work. I don't know why anyone is allowing you, know, you to be pushed into this corner. I don't think we entirely know why it is that some countries were hit harder than others. But I have to say, I think scientifically the smart money is on a mixture of forces. One would be this cross immunity. Although China had an awful time in Wuhan, in Hubei province, it didn't spread elsewhere in the country. And I suspect that meant because a lot of them had this cross immunity. And I think nearby countries in the main had lots of uh, cross immunity. So that's one possibility. Uh, the other one though is in terms of the severity of uh, what did the virus do to a particular population. We've seen devastating effects in countries like UK and in Belgium, uh, France and maybe even in Sweden and much smaller numbers of deaths in other countries like, like Greece and in Germany. And you might think, well, was that what it was it something that they did? Uh, and I wish it was true, because if it was something we did, we could learn from it and do it and it would work in the future. But there's no evidence whatsoever that it was anything humans did. The passage of this virus through the human population is an entirely natural process that completely ignored our puny efforts to control it. So there is this theory, I don't like the name very much, but it's called dry tinder. If people are in a country who are vulnerable for, to dying in the winter, usually of respiratory viruses, if you have a very mild winter season, 
like UK did. We had a very mild seasonal flu last year and the year before, and so did Sweden. Uh, then what happens is there are a larger number of very vulnerable people who are even older than usual and, and, and I think that's why we suffered a rather large number of deaths. It was still only 0.06% of the population equivalent to about four weeks of normal mortality. But countries that had very severe winters recently and Greece and Germany certainly had very lethal winter flus in the last two years, I think then they had a smaller population of very vulnerable people and that is the main reason why they lost fewer people. It's not to do with locking down, it's not to do with testing or tracking or tracing. I, I personally don't think any of those measures have made any difference at all. So Belgium and UK and Sweden were particularly vulnerable, whereas adjacent Nordic countries, I, I get fed up with hearing about this uh, idea that they locked down and that's why it saved them. I'm afraid the other Nordic countries had normal flu epidemics the last two or three years. Sweden, like UK, had very mild epidemics. You can just go and look at the number of deaths it's subnormal for UK and Sweden and now we've got a supranormal, a larger than normal number of deaths from COVID. Now, there may be other reasons, I'm not saying there are not, but I think those two main forces, the amount of prior immunity and the so-called dry tinder, what vulnerable fraction of the population did you have as a result of seasonal flu being intense or not, I think that accounts for most of it. And it's, it's just hubristic and, uh, and, and kind of silly that our government and advisors tell you that doing things that have never worked in the past, like lockdown, are going to make any difference to the transfer of respiratory viruses. I don't believe it for a moment. There's no scientific evidence behind it. And there are much stronger scientific hypotheses that do explain it. You might think that in terms of numbers of deaths, excess deaths, that uh, COVID has produced such a large number that this will be an awful year for excess deaths. But surprisingly not. 2020 is lining up to be about eights in a list since 1993. Roughly 620,000 people die every year in this country. They say in life we are also in death and it's true. It's been awful for those who've been personally affected by illness and death but it's not particularly unusual in terms of the number of people who've died. So one of the things I've noticed has happened in, in recent years is that we almost seem to be moving uh, you know, post-science, post-fact, as if, as if facts don't matter. For someone who's qualified and practiced as a professional scientist for 35 years, uh, I think it's deeply distressing that I don't think you should listen to me if I talked about, I don't know, uh, the design of motorways or something like that. I don't know anything about motorways or, or how to grow trees better. I don't know anything about that. But I do know quite a lot about immunology, infection, inflammation, and the way in infectious organisms move through a population. I've no other reason for giving this interview other than I really care what happens to my country. And we have to pull ourselves out of this. And I personally believe the way forward is twofold. It's not difficult. One, we should cease mass testing of the mostly well in the community immediately. It only provides misleading and grey information and yet we're driving policy almost completely based on it. It's definitely wrong. Should not do it. Use the tests in hospital. I'm not saying don't test. Don't continue mass testing and for God's sake don't increase the number of tests. It is a pathology all of its own which must be stamped out by right thinking people. And I'm afraid the people on SAGE who have provided the modelling, 
the predictions, the, the, the measures that should be taken, that their work is so badly and obviously flawed, lethally incompetent, that you should have no more to do with these people. They should be fired immediately. And the effect of that advice has been to have cost lots of innocent people their lives from non-COVID causes. They should be dismissed and reconstituted using an appropriate group of skilled individuals, especially avoiding any who might even have the suggestion of a conflict of interest. I think we're right at the edge of the precipice and I, I really hope that we can pull back. All right, folks, so there we are. I appreciate uh, everybody tuning in and listening. we got Greg Zanetti for the uh, next hour to talk about, uh, of course, all the insights and what to expect uh, coming forward uh, for the future. Um, remember, COVID infections were falling all year long, okay? They increased gradually this summer, then they were falling, and you need to understand that our government response has only exasperated the economic effects, the bad health effects, and this part of the season is no different than any other part of the season. This is normal in terms of the increase in the ICU beds. We need to stop panicking uh, at this point. We need to be stopped running by this group called SAGE, which doesn't even have a single immunologist. You need to think about cross immunization, and you need to go out and live your life. I cannot tell you that if you sit here and listen to the fear porn that has been peddled to you, and the other things that are being told to you that you will continue to live in fear and cower in fear and expect the government to bail you out, especially when it comes to the forced vaccinations that will end up as long as you accept this first premise. Dr. Michael Yearden says the pandemic is over and the PCR virus tests uh, that are out there have a lot of false, po false positives. They are not looking for the virus. They are looking for RNA. This is a dead virus that people are looking at right now. This is a forensic test. Make no mistake about it. Why are asymptomatic people getting tested for this? You need to think about this. We appreciate everybody listening here in the Kiva. We will um, go ahead and hit the uh, top of the hour news, and then we'll bring it back uh, for my interview with Greg Zanetti. <laughs> AM 1600 KIVA at 93.7 FM here with Greg Zanetti, Zanetti Financial. And we're going to talk about the outcome of the election. It's a fact in looking forward to 2021. Right. And as always, we appreciate uh, Z Greg Zanetti being here in studio talking about uh, these very important things. We've been preparing uh, everybody. And as we're on the eve of the Thanksgiving holiday, this is the right. last time you heard from Greg before Thanksgiving. Happy Thanksgiving to everybody, especially for those people who are choosing to celebrate it uh, out there. This has been an abysmal year, and uh, Greg has made a lot of sense of it uh, in spite of it, and he was able to tell you a lot of what was coming uh, way ahead of time. So, Greg, thanks for all your insights. Well, and same back. I mean, your whole show's been dedicated to this, looking ahead, what's coming, and you're just very good at predicting how things will play oh, out thanks, so your Greg. audience is not surprised. So let's look ahead. And there is an old saying, uh, if you want to understand the future, the more you understand about the past, the more you'll know about the future. So there is a pattern to American, I don't know, our history that plays out over and over again in 80-year segments. And we've talked about it on the show before, but a quick reset. It's 2020 right now. Did you say reset? Did somebody say reset? <laughs> yeah. Well, I've got, uh, what do you call it, the uh, PTSD when you hear that. Well, we've had several resets oh. in the country, and it seems to come about every, 
I don't know, if a generation is 20 years, it comes every 80 years. So let's go back to 1940, Eddie. Uh, it was 80 years ago. We're not at war yet. World War II starts in 1941. America was divided in 1940. Families were at each other's throats over whether to go engage with Hitler or not, whether to get involved in Asia or not. And a lot of people believe that should stay over there. It has no effect on America. It wasn't, of course, until the bombing of Pearl Harbor, the nation comes together. But prior to that, we were a divided nation. Go back 80 years prior to 1940. You're in 1860. We're not at war yet. The Civil War starts the next year, but the nation is divided, free and slave, uh, you know, states' rights versus federalism, you know, we, you know, all of these things that led to, you know, the, of course, the Battle of Fort Sumner. It started the war the next year. Let's go back 80 years prior. It was 1780. General Washington is going to lose. His army is deserting. The Brits are pretty happy just to sit it out. It is not till 1781 that George Washington wins. And the British leave and America gets on its feet. Let's go back 80 years prior. 1700, the Brits and the colonists get together and decide to throw the French off the continent. Well, an 11-year war begins. But the whole legal system, the whole tenor of America changes there. And then you go back to 1620. The Pilgrims land at Plymouth Rock. They've lost 15 to 20 percent of their uh, group on the way over. And even through all that pain, they do something wonderful. On November 11th, uh, exactly 400 years ago, almost exactly, uh, they signed the Mayflower Compact. They dedicate the land to God, and they say, we're going to be different from Europe. We're not going to be like those kings and princes and all the intrigue. We're going to be better. It's every 80 years, in the year that ended with zero, we were on the cusp of major change. It's not till the year that ends with one that that change comes upon us. I believe 2020 has been a doorstep year, and you just said it has been a lousy year. Well, they would have thought the same in 1780, 1860, 1940. They all would have thought that, and they would have thought, what's coming the next year? So let's look ahead. What can we, I think, reasonably predict going into 2021? And I'm going to start where I would always start because it's my business. Let's start with the markets. Let's start with money. Let's start with the economy. Where is this going regardless of who gets elected? And I'm going to give a shout out to a guy named George Gammon who's done some amazing, amazing work on this. And so if you go to YouTube and put in George Gammon, I think you'll like what he says. But he made a pretty good point. He said, look, right now the economy, or better, better said, well, the economy, yes, and the stock market is all about the stimulus. And so I'm going to take you back several months to, to the early part of 2020. So what, 11 months ago. Eddie, the stock market was already weakening actually in the fall of last year and heading into the beginning of this year prior to COVID. Then COVID hit. And do you remember this in March? The market starts right. to slam down. Bam, yep. bam, bam. Then Very on, quickly. Right. Then on March 16th, the Federal Reserve steps in and says, we will save you. And they've, all, they've been doing this in the past. They thought they could do it again. They announced $700 billion of securities purchases. They were going to intervene in the market. They were ready to print money, and they were ready to lower interest rates yet again to zero. 
And that was supposed to save us. And nothing happened. In fact, the opposite. The market continued to jackhammer down. That was new. It wasn't until a week later, on March 23rd, something different happened. The government said, "Uh uh-oh, if the Fed can't do it, we're going to have to do it. And the government announced what immediately was a $2.5 trillion stimulus package, which morphed into $6 trillion in stimulus. And suddenly, the S&P 500, the Dow Jones Industrial Average, all that reverses, boom, up we go. And so, and we haven't really looked back since. And of course, what happened was with all this direct stimulus that came from the government to the people where they were getting not only their unemployment benefits, but they were getting the free checks. Of course, a lot of these people were getting paid more by not working than they had been by working. And, you know, suddenly the market starts to rise. The economy starts to come back. Except I want to do a pause here. When we say the economy is coming back, we always look at what we call the GDP, the gross domestic product. If government spends $6 trillion, and that's like putting $6 trillion into the GDP. Now, is that productive in, in its use? Is it a productive asset just to give people money? Of course would, not, because course you not. remove off the uh, causal right. creation of that money by right. simply just hocus-pocus. Right. And Which so, is what I call that. I mean, every time you inject money into the system, that's exactly, it's this magic, it's hocus-pocus. It's never real, it's just something that somebody did. Right. And so, we'll get to the punchline on that in just a minute. I shouldn't have brought that up so early. But then what happened during the summer? The stimulus started to wear off, and immediately it was, the government needs to do more. And thus came the HEROES bill. Remember that? Yep. And then we couldn't decide through the election what we were going to do, what we were not going to do. And the markets kind of meandered until Election Day. And then they start to head up on supposedly the the Biden win. What the lesson for your listeners has to be here and what has changed significantly in 2020 is the market does not care what the Federal Reserve does anymore. The Federal Reserve is out of ammunition. They have dropped interest rates to zero. I guess they could go negative, but they are reluctant to do that on interest rates and have negative rates. That has not worked anywhere else in the world. And pushing money down to banks and then hoping the banks will filter that out into the general economy to stimulate, the market's not buying that anymore. The stock market is looking only at government and how much money will be printed, whether it's by the Trump campaign or Trump presidency or a Biden presidency, you know, where will we get more stimulus? Will government spend like a drunken sailor is basically what the what the markets are saying. The problem with this is as we stimulate, this takes us closer to socialism and actually communism. And I want you to start thinking differently now. We are all cheering for the stimulus. The economy needs the money. Let's go. Even President Trump. Is it going to be $2.5 trillion or the Democrat plan of $3 trillion? Again, as government pushes money into the economy, that is part of our GDP. And yes, GDP can grow. But Eddie, we've got charts that go back, believe it or not, to the 1780s. I mean, this is General Washington time. And in the 1780s, Government spending as a percentage of our GDP, our economy, was 3%. 
What that means is 97% of our economy was private sector. That's positive. That's a good thing. The private sector creates wealth. Government never creates wealth. By the Civil War, what we'd seen, well, it was during the Civil War, better, better said. They had to ratchet up government spending. And we hit the unheard of number that 10% of the GDP was attributable to government spending. Still 90% was private sector, even during war. Then we hit an inflection point in 1913. 1913, World War I hasn't begun yet, but we launched the Federal Reserve and the ability to print money pretty much at will. World War I came along the next year, or, uh, you know, 1916, 1917. And what happened? 30% of our GDP was attributable to government spending. The war ended, and that percentage dropped. But in every case, after a crisis, the government spending level drops, but to a higher level. Then we roll into World War II. 50% of our GDP was attributable to government spending. Half. After World War II, it drops off, but again, at a higher level. Now you have to spring forward to today and COVID. Some back-of-the-napkin math will tell you that looking into 2021... 57% of our GDP will be dependent on government wow. spending. Wow. That means only 43% of our economy. No wonder they want. Sec- right. No wonder Thank they you. want communi- communism. Yes. Yeah. yes. And now this starts to answer some questions. Why is big tech, what, why, why did they give five times as much money to Biden as they did to Trump? Why did the big banks give five times as much money to Biden as they did Trump? Well, it's easy. They have they have fused with government this unholy alliance between among the central bankers, the government, and these major corporations have formed this creature that is not capitalistic at all, but is totally dependent on government spending, government largesse, and the larger government gets, the more entrenched these mega institutions have become. And so... What we're heading toward, (laughs) and whether it's with Trump or with Biden, we are marching toward a more centrally planned, government-controlled economy in fusion with these megacorporations and at the expense of the middle class, the lower middle class, and the poor. And that includes small businesses, medium-sized businesses. And you see this playing out every day across the country And in particular, in centrally planned states like New Mexico, where our governor is openly saying, you know, read my lips, big business means big business, and the rest of you fend for yourselves. So where are we? What we know now is we have an economy that has become dependent on stimulus to spark the markets. And then a lot of us, even Republicans, are saying, yeah, well, i got to get that stock market going up higher. Well, okay. But as we head down this path, the government control gets ever bigger and the inputs that encourage a centrally planned economy are, are growing. All the inputs are encouraging this. So how is this going to affect us? Well, if Trump wins, and I think there's a good shot, <laughs> I think actually he's going to win a lot of these lawsuits, but we'll see. And the Senate, and let's assume the Senate remains Republican, 
the path to a centrally planned economy will slow down. But, but don't think it's going to stop. If Biden wins, the path to a centrally planned economy will go at warp speed. I mean, you can look, you can assume universal basic income. You can look for more people to buy houses courtesy of the government. Uh, we're going to have pension fund bailouts all across the nation. You know, the, the, the states of Illinois, New York, California, uh, Kentucky, these people, New Mexico, who have not funded their pension funds, don't worry, we're going to make them whole. We're just going to print the money and we're going to plus you up. And decades of corruption and incompetence will just be papered over. But of course, at the expense of the overall economy, as we, in an artificial way, prop up the GDP via government spending, it's not productive. And then add in debt forgiveness to the students. What, another $1.6 trillion? Well, okay, I get that. But someone is someone loaned that $1.6 trillion. And if you forgive the student loans, again, I understand, but somebody's not getting paid back. So what's coming? Headwinds? I, you can't, I can't make specific investment advice. I'm just going to talk about headwinds and tailwinds. If President Trump ends up being reelected, I think you can expect a $3 trillion deficit next year. And let's remember... Even with the Republicans in charge of the Senate and the White House, when the economy was firing on all cylinders, when the unemployment was falling, when GDP was growing, at least with some participation by the private sector, we were still running trillion-dollar deficits per year. Now that we've cut the legs out of the economy, it is not unreasonable in a Trump presidency with a Republican Senate to still expect a $3 trillion deficit in 2021. If Biden wins, Katie, bar the door, baby, we're probably looking at a $5 trillion deficit next year. And in either case, inflation expectations are going to rise. So I guess one of the messages to the audience would be this. Um, be careful what you wish for. If you're wishing for more stimulus so that the stock market will rise, so it will help your 401k plan, I get that. But with that will come the march toward a more centrally planned economy and the gap between the wealthy and the poor is going to grow ever wider. And the, the chance for civil unrest will increase. The fact is the U.S. is moving along the same lines that Europe and Asia have already gone to. We're moving to a centrally planned economy. And will it matter that you personally are getting richer if your country and your government are deteriorating? Because in centrally planned economies, the government gets ever more corrupt. And so, anyway, the point is, if you are betting on the stock market to spark economic growth, that's probably a bad connection. You can have what we have had this year, a rising stock market with a deteriorating economy. And now we're in a very weird world where more central planning, more government intervention <laughs> actually helps the stock market, which was anathema. What, Ten years ago, five years, nobody would have thought like this. We needed to have the private sector grow. We needed to have the more wealth creation happen in order for the stock market to increase. That's not the case now. 2020 changed that. 
Everything now in the stock market is predicated on stimulus and not stimulus from the Federal Reserve Bank, but stimulus from the government itself. The problem with this is all centrally planned economies eventually fail and they fail dramatically. So where do we go from here? Uh, I'm going to actually do a kind of a pause here because there's a great, great quote to wrap this up and move to phase two of what I wanted to talk to you about today. And it comes from Ayn or Ayn Rand. And she said this, and this was back in the 1930s. Watch money. Money is the barometer of a society's virtue. When you see that trading is done not by consent, but by compulsion. When you see that in order to produce, you need to obtain permission from men who produce nothing. When you see that money is flowing to those who deal not in goods, but in favors. And when you see that men get richer by graft and by pull than by work, and your laws don't protect you against them, but protect them against you, when you see corruption being rewarded and honesty becoming a self-sacrifice, you may know that your society is doomed. Well, I think most of your listeners can see a lot of this happening right now. And she warned about it during the Depression, and now here we are 90 years later, and a lot of that's true. So the question is, how will we be doomed? The problem with both paths, whether President Trump stays in office or Biden gets in, the weak link is going to be the currency. It's going to be the dollar. And what you have to realize is that the dollar is merely a medium of exchange. In and of itself, a dollar has no value. It is a piece of paper. It is a digit on a page. It is great for convenience. But to think you can store wealth, store value in a medium of exchange, probably not. So if you're banking on dollars to save you, probably not, especially in this environment where it is clear we are going to be printing currency by the trillions and we expect that to have no consequence. In essence, what we are saying through stimulus is that via an abstraction, because that's what the dollar is, it's an abstraction. In and of itself, again, it has no value. It only has value because we impute, impute that value to it But in and of itself, it is not wealth. Yet we are basing the growth of a stock market and the growth of an economy on stimulus via these abstractions, which we call dollars. What will happen is at some point, whether it comes externally from the international markets or internally here, there will be a break in the confidence where we will say, wait a minute. That abstraction isn't what I thought it was worth. I have to start unloading these things. We are looking at a path to inflation and rapidly rising inflation because once confidence in that abstraction breaks, off we go. And the issue in the United States, which will be different from, say, the issue in Asia, is because we have outsourced so much of our manufacturing, we believe that dollars are wealth in substitution for real production, real 
goods, real services. Well, all right. In China, if they have all kinds of trouble with their currency and they have inflation, well, they are still making cell phones. They're still making plastics. They're making clothes. They're making things they can trade amongst themselves and they can weather the storm. In America, because so much of our wealth is founded on dollars, <laughs> if those dollars evaporate away in some way, our fall will be further. So, what I would say is this. We have talked about on this show how you should be investing in things that can't be printed, that you should be investing in low-tech, like water and food food and commodities and precious metals. And I understand that is a very odd portfolio. And I understand that that portfolio can be volatile. But do not mistake volatility for risk. The dollar seems like it is not risky because every day it just seems like your account stays stable. But underneath, the value of the dollar is deteriorating and it is eroding. And when the confidence breaks, what you is deemed to be stable now will suddenly become very unstable. And things that are volatile now, where you look at the the price of eggs going up and down wildly, or or the the price of timber moving up and down, or, or cotton or soybeans, this kind of thing suddenly will be a safe haven. What the Federal Reserve is trying to do right now is they are trying to decrease the volatility in the markets through their interventions. The government is trying to do the same thing via its interventions. You cannot, however, destroy volatility. You can't tamp down volatility. What you can do is move it. You can move volatility from one sector to another sector, but it's a little bit like playing whack-a-mole somewhere where you can tap it down in one place, but it pops up elsewhere. Or maybe a better analogy would be trying to stop volatility by clogging at the end of a garden hose. Yeah, you can do that, but at some point your hose is going to be swelling. If it's connected to the fire hydrant, the the pressure on the top of the fire hydrant is going to be growing. You can move volatility, but you can't stop volatility. At the end, the water is going to come shooting out and somewhere where you don't expect. I think this is what the Democrats in particular don't understand as they go down this path of we can print and there will be no consequences It's just not true. So I've talked way too long about what's coming in 2021, but expect more distortions, expect volatility where you wouldn't expect it now, and expect the acceleration of inflation and disruptions in our currency. I think those are pretty predictable things heading into 2021. We're speaking to Greg Zanetti, Zanetti Financial. You can always uh, reach out to him or uh, reach out directly to me, 550-5500. And uh, this sounds like more doom and gloom uh, going into 2021, and that's not exactly the the picture that we're trying to paint for you. We're just simply trying to level with you to prepare and be honest. And uh, as we near the uh, end of November going into Thanksgiving, and we're not going to have a Black Friday Thanksgiving and all these other things are canceled, I mean, we are in uncharted territory and uh, Greg is basically putting it out there. Uh, let's go back to something that we actually kind of predicted. But I, I have my reasons as to why it didn't happen. And we thought that the stock market 
was going to go really negative, uh, if you recall, back in uh, September. What are the reasons why you think we didn't go as negative? Why did it stay uh, buoyant? Well, there were certainly interventions. We know that for, well, there are, no for, well, there are forensics. There were interventions in the market. The other thing was this promise of stimulus that once the election was over, we were going to get either you know, two and a half or three trillion. And if Biden got elected, now he's basically worth five trillion. And we know that that money will flow disproportionately to the markets, which is why the markets were overjoyed when Biden won, not because they believe in free market capitalism, but it goes back to the premise. The markets are not moving on the private sector anymore. The markets are moving on government interventions, which is a scary thing because that takes us down the path to more central planning, which eventually is going to be a huge problem for us. So, I mean, to me, the correlation between stimulus and the markets is so close, you can't step, you cannot in reasonable way say there is no causation. There is some causation between the stimulus and the government interventions in the rise of the markets. And under Biden, they expect it to be even bigger. Now, you know, what has that led to? It's a small group of stocks hauling the wagon. And it's those huge mega companies that are so intertwined with government that are the huge winners down the line, the more private sector oriented stocks. They're not faring nearly as well. We look at uh, this Ayn Rand quote, uh, watch money as a value. Uh, where right. do you see currency going? If not the markets, where do we see currencies uh, going? I know that you already um, referred to the depletion of the value of the dollar, but what else will go down? Well, the euro is going to go down. The yen is going to go down. The yuan is going to go down. And people are saying, well, if they all go down, what difference does it make? There are things that, again, we'll go back to what can't be printed. They're all going to be falling against things that can't be printed. The, the real wealth of the world, farmland, will go up in price, not because farmland improved, farmland's farmland, but the value of the currency is going down, whether you're in Europe or in Asia or in the United States. You'll see the same with water. It's not that water improves. Water is water. But that the prices you will pay will be higher because it's going to take more units of whatever currency. So against things that can't be printed, all currencies will be falling. The way they trick you is they say the dollar is strengthening against the yen. Well, okay, got it. But it's a little bit like five people jumping out of an airplane. Everybody's falling. And then if one guy starts to fall faster than the other, it doesn't mean the other guy's rising. It's just the perception is he's not falling as fast. But the ground is still coming at you. This is, this is where we are with currency. So what they're going to try to do is they're going to try to move us to a digital currency. And this is the way they want to wash the inflation out through the system. It isn't efficient enough to be pushing money out in checks to us directly, they want us to move to digital wallets, digital currencies. And under Biden, they're very clear about this. They want to move in this direction quickly. I think President Trump would stand in the way of this, which is one reason why they want to take him out. And so maybe we should play that game. Let's get it out of the monetary for a minute. Okay. And let's go to the political, the cultural, Ugh, the social. The stressful. Yeah. All right, let, let's just let's play out some scenarios. Let's okay. say um, some of the reports of fraud are verified in the courts. 
and our election situation changes dramatically. Mm, oh, meaning like, wait, may, maybe President Trump has a point here. We're going to the Supreme Court. Right. Uh, Supreme Court's going to get involved here. Yeah. Right. And, that, and then Sidney Powell walks in and says, we can prove that three million ballots were split or switched. And here are the servers. And this is how it went down. Millions of Americans will lose faith in the process. And I, you could say the election itself will be invalidated. Uh, and let's just say they can prove fraud, but not enough to overturn the election. I mean, that might actually be preferred. Right. Okay. Because regardless, and I'm just saying this from right. the standpoint of we already know the calamitous future that awaits us in 2021. Be prepared, folks. You thought 2020 sucked. Right. 2021 has the potential of being far worse than uh, 2020, right. especially with, with the embattle. But uh, who would we want to go ahead and carry that mantle? The Democrats. Right. right. Well, <laughs> Yeah, you got to be careful for what you wish for, though. But I, mean, I don't mean like in that sense. I right. mean, they should be careful for the fact that they wish so hard for the presidency. Right. We didn't wish for the presidency. We already had it. Right. No, you're right. So uh, let's say, though, that you get um, Pennsylvania legislature. They're Republican. They step in and they say, we're sending Republican electors in because we know it was fraudulent. And even if the courts didn't prove it, we know it's true. I mean, is the left going to accept that? They, they would go crazy. Or if you have where the courts step in and say, yes, we know there's been massive fraud, but there's nothing we can do about it. And Trump says, well, why should I leave the White House? This wasn't a valid election. You know, we need just to start all over again. The point is, we're setting the stage for a very dangerous dynamic. Let's just play this out that we head into December, January, and Right now, the left is clearly under the assumption they've got the presidency in the bag. What if it's snatched away from them? What if the courts declare Trump the winner? Real problems. Right. The problems that we all anticipated on election night of a Trump win will be magnified tenfold. Sure. Uh, you know, ultimate rage you know, now goes through the inner cities, and they'll say Trump is an usurper of the presidency, and all of this will rationalize Mob violence, you know, we're validated, we're justified to do this, we're preventing, you know, a dictatorship from forming in the United States, whatever, everything now is acceptable. And even if millions of Americans view Trump's actions as justified, the rest of the world will look at it and, and they're predisposed to not like Trump. <laughs> and now the international world looks and says, America's rioting. Trump has taken over the presidency, even though, you know, he wasn't elected on election night. We need to do something about it. Regardless, civil unrest will be blamed entirely on Trump and on the conservatives. Meanwhile, the world looks on in horror <laughs> as we shred ourselves. What does that do to the stock market, the bond market? What does that do to the value of the dollar? That I would assume our currency would come under pressure. And now what you're getting is the marriage of economic problems married with societal and cultural problems and civil unrest. Now you get the bubbles that have been created in stocks and bonds and currencies all start to pop and it's all blamed on Trump. And the reaction from Trump will be predictable. We've got to do something. More stimulus, more debt, more intervention, and more drift toward a centralized economy that we talked about at the beginning of this show. So meanwhile, everybody's blaming everybody else. The, and the public is going to be predisposed to blame whomever side they were on, you know, or the opposite of it to begin with. But getting back to the civil unrest, now there's going to be a huge demand for martial law. 
The conservatives will call for it. We have to restore order. We've got to get in there and save Americans. And there are two ways to do this. One is the very. Hey, do you think? Wait, let me stop you to interrupt yeah. just a thought process there. But the reason why I don't see martial law happening is because martial law already exists in all these blue states. <laughs> well, and, and and why not let them if they want to run? And we do believe in states' rights. Why not let them go ahead and destroy their own states? Well, We've already seen that people have, and it's not it's not Donald Trump's. It's not President Trump's responsibility to protect those states from themselves. If they decide that they want to go ahead and, you know, exercise their rage and their Black Lives Matter and their Antifa and shut down Seattle and shut down Portland and shut down Albuquerque and shut down. If that's what they decide that they want to do, they have that right to pursue that type of thing. But, you know, it'll be pushing all sorts of people out of those states. Well, sure. Rather than go for martial law, let them uh, get what they want out of it. But what does that do to the overall economy? I don't. I don't know that these people are participating in quite. I mean, if you look in the uh, the state place of the state of New Mexico, and you look at states like Florida, Ohio, um, and Texas, in terms of being the the largest in their contributions to GDP, we just talked about thirty five percent of the GDP of this country coming from I think those three states. That's something. Well, well yeah, but you've got what twenty uh, some odd percent coming from California. Uh, yeah, they, I think it's like seventeen, eighteen percent for California, so, but 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 declining rapidly. Right. So, but if they melt down, I and mean, that's not good for the state of Washington melts down, it's certainly not good for the currency, mm-hmm. and it certainly won't be good for the stock market. And you are destroying wealth. There, in most cases, wealth isn't destroyed. Wealth moves. If if money leaves stocks, it might go to bonds. If money leaves bonds, it might go to real estate. And we're real. A few things destroy wealth, though. Wars destroy wealth. Uh, natural disasters destroy wealth. Civil unrest, civil wars destroy wealth as you destroy factories and businesses and so on. And this idea of the broken window theory, well, yeah, we break the windows, but the economy will boom because we have to replace all the broken windows. Well, no. I mean, the money you went to replace a perfectly good window could have been spent on building something new. So... No, a replacement economy is not a strong economy. But the pressure will be for the president to do something Mm -hmm. if we have massive civil rights. I feel that, yeah, for sure. Now, that's a trap. I agree. Now, if he does do that, he deploys the army and all the National Guard, and we've got troops in the streets, and the whole world is seeing this. Again, they're predisposed not to like him anyway. You say, look, it is a dictatorship. Look, America has lost it. They and the Democrats will be screaming for outside intervention. <laughs> They're going to ask for international intervention into the United States. You watch. If this thing plays out, they'll be saying, "We need help from outside. The United Nations must intervene to save us from our from our dictator." At the very least, we will end up with economic penalties. Uh, Maybe the loss of as the dollar is the world's reserve currency. And now the inflation that we just predicted now goes into the next hyperdrive. And, of course, the Democrats won't give one flip about that because it's all about power to them anyway. And, of course, the globalists will love it because this will all be justification for the Great Reset. Let's play the other scenario, though. Let's, okay. say, let's say Biden wins. The Biden presidency will have immediate and some violent repercussions as well. Under Biden, Eddie, I think you can expect an economic crash to speed up dramatically. The stock market may go up, but the real economy 
if we go into level four lockdowns, yep. which they are talking about right now, an economy that's but already who, who, been. Who is talking about level four lockdowns? The Biden people. What, four or six weeks have shut the entire country down? Oh, my word. <laughs> what will that do to the small business sector? I mean, they're barely hanging on as it is. Meanwhile, the big will get bigger. The big box stores stay open. Big tech dominates. But the underlying economy will just be deteriorating underneath. And this gap between rich and poor will expand even more. And you know, we will move toward a centralized, planned, centrally planned economy at warp speed. So what they would want to do then is they'll say, well, the crash of the economy, that was residual Trump effect because they don't want to take blame for it. And so if they're going to do it, they've got to do it fast so Biden doesn't take the hit. Now, remember, these lockdowns will also prevent conservatives from organizing. Keep everybody at home. Right. And, you know, we don't want congregations, big groups at churches or at NRA meetings or so on. We don't want organization going on out there. Lockdowns serve that purpose pretty well. <clears throat> Meanwhile, censorship of conservative voices and platforms. <laughs> you, you watch what happens there. I mean, under Biden. Do you think there will be any recourse as they start shutting down conservative YouTube stations and so on and so forth? And we saw that yesterday. And I think that we understand that those are not platforms. Right. Um, or, excuse me, that they're right. not, they're not uh, let me see, publishers, platforms. They're not publishers. They're platforms. Well, they say they are. And the platform should not be banning or reducing or restricting. Because if it's a platform, then they can go ahead and, you know, a paid platform to be able to, to publish absolutely anything without regard to whatever it is. Right. That's no censorship. Right. And so that's uh, the point Ted Cruz was making, if I'm not mistaken. Right. And if Trump wins, there's mm. I think it's called what is it? Section 230 of that law. They they could rescind that yeah. and they could say, hey, look, Google and YouTube and Twitter, you guys, you're going to lose this status of the platform. You you're subject to lawsuits and. Tell you what, that, that'll start to change things. Or antitrust legislation starts coming, and we're going to break you up. Now, there, there are issues there, too. You know, but anyway, under Biden, you can expect sites to be removed from the web just entirely and filtered out by search algorithms. They will just disappear. Already happening. Right. Seeing that now on Google already. Right. So the ability for the conservatives to organize and communicate with each other will drop dramatically. Yeah, correct. Now... What will naturally happen here is this will unify conservative groups and, and any differences they have that will put that aside. You know, the enemy and my enemy is a friend. I mean, we, we, we've got to we've got to get together here. I mean, none of these guys are going to agree to carbon control. And nobody's going to want to follow these hate speech laws and all this social justice lunacy out here. Conservatives will will unite and you will see. <laughs> You'll see conservatives now take to the streets. And I'm not sure. We'll see how the military and law enforcement react there because most of them drift conservative anyway. And there won't be much the, the globalists or the leftists will be able to do about that. So what will they have to do, Eddie? They will have to go after the guns. You can expect under Biden and under a lockdown and under this seething of the conservatives, what have you done to our nation? They're going to say red flag logs. We are going to have to take the guns in order to preserve, you know, the, the peace. And we are going to have draconian drug law measures. I mean, uh, gun, gun control measures. You, you watch. 
And they would have to do, try to do that disarmament pretty quickly. So. They would not get very far, Greg. And I think wouldn't. we, I think we should stop right there. But they're, <laughs> I, I think for us to go any further at this point on that alone, I think is, I think too, too much for people to process. Um, I think, you know, one of the things that I'm consistently mindful of, as you are, and I think uh, most good people who get on the radio are, is they're mindful of what's going on in the minds of the people who are out there. Right. And I think Greg has given you enough information for you to surmise what this means for you, your family. Um, if they can prevent you from celebrating a Thanksgiving, if they could prevent you from entering right. a store, if they could prevent you from uh, exercising your free speech, Think about all these things that they have prevented. They absolutely hated. They use COVID. Everything, uh, everything that is COVID has been used as an excuse to go ahead and bully you into doing what the government tells you to do. And as we fig- fig- found out with the government, whether it's the election, whether it's financial mismanagement, whatever it happens to be, the government is not your friend and it cannot uh, help you. So the more you see to it, the more emboldened it becomes, the more it enables uh, itself over you. And it does not have any mercy on you whatsoever. One of the last things I do want to say with regard to uh, the government is I see this complete and total apathy that has come from the left, particularly the Democrat governors. They don't care. Um, Some really empty, vacant, uh, as I mentioned on uh, Tuesday's program, which I thought was really interesting, is the city planning uh, department uh, came out. And I couldn't believe this quote. I like I was so incredibly messed up after after reading it. It says if the governor's office determines that someone is not an essential business, despite what they think, they are obligated to shut down. That is the director for planning and zoning and business after business from Hobby Lobby to Dillard's to I know a lot of people who are staying open. They refuse to shut down because they're continuing to try and pay people. And a lot of people are getting things done and. We've had massive traffic jam all week long. I'm telling you, most people have uh, pushed back, even as a blue uh, of a state as we are, Greg. Well, no, I, I agree, but I also agree with what you said at the beginning of that. The governors don't care. They don't. And if we go back kind of the top of the hour or near the top, we're saying, look, 57% of our GDP is going to be directly or indirectly government. I mean, what they've done here is they've locked in a group of people who will always vote for them because they have figured out if you can vote yourself money out of the treasury, right. <laughs> you, you, you've got it made. And so we're dealing with 43% who think like we do. Wow, that that is a big problem. And so how do we reverse that? That has got to be some message. And you're going to have to try to message that where people have gotten kind of used to this will accept it. Have you, have you ever heard of the phrase, the bread, the bread of shame? No, I never heard that. Okay. This is an ancient, ancient way of thinking. And it was the way the ancients viewed charity. Let's just say, Eddie, you were down and out. Uh, for whatever reason, your business failed, you were in trouble. It, people were nice back then. They would give you bread. They would try to get you to your feet. And you were then, if you took that bread and you built your strength up, and you rebuilt your business, and off you went, and it was just a handout for a short period of time so you could get on your feet again, there was no shame in that. If, however, you continued to take the bread, and you never even tried to get back on your feet, 
they start to call this the bread of shame, that you were taking something that wasn't earned and that you had no shame about it whatsoever. In fact, you were entitled to it. What we, what has happened here in our country among a very large group of people is that there is no shame in taking permanent handouts. Certainly seems to be that that is going to be the case, right? It does. So we got to push back and get that, you know, that appetite, the capitalism, the Ayn Rand, uh, you know, back to money. And, uh, you know, I think I don't say worshiping capitalism, but certainly holding it in the highest civic regard, I think, is so incredibly important to this country. I, I agree. But what we've become here isn't very capitalist. You know, again, this merger of big tech, big pharma, the U.S. government and the central banks into this huge entity that actually prevents young, strong businesses from competing against these monopolies. That's not capitalism. And the more we head towards centrally planned economies, which is what we are doing right now, the worse this is going to get. And so how do we message this where we say we want to push power down away from centralized economies, away from centralized power. And there are ways we can do that, but it's going to be a tough sell for a group of people who have come to believe that the bread of shame is actually a good thing. Greg, thank you for being here. Your number? My number, 250-3754. Go to my website at ZanettiFinancial.com. All right, we'll see you all at uh, 4 p.m. Monday Monday afternoon right here in the Kiva. AM 1600 KIVA 93.7 FM.